All right, so if you're new to us or just getting started, we, we read right through the Bible. We believe the Bible is the Word of God. And so I didn't grow up in a church learning the Bible, and it was really exciting to me. I, I, I suddenly, as a young man, became very interested in learning what the Bible says. So if you are not interested in what the Bible says, then we hope that God will change your heart and you will realize just how life-changing it is. But one of the things that you can learn to do is read the Bible and ask God to teach you and speak to you. He will speak to you right through the Bible if you're just open. In fact, people often say, I, I really want to hear God speak to me. And I tell them, well, read the Bible. And they say, but I want him to speak out loud. And I say, well, read the Bible out loud. God <laughs> will speak to you through the Bible. So we've been reading this letter that Paul wrote to a, a church in the first century in a city called Corinth. And they had a lot of problems, and he's trying to put them back together. They really humpty dumptied it. And so the first four chapters, he, he was trying to repair the division that was in the church. And there, were, there was pride and, and social division, the rich and the poor. And he's trying to bring them back together to get along. Not like churches ever experience that today. But if you ever hear of a church that has strife over politics or masks or anything like that, we could be prepared for that. And then the middle section, there were some disorders that he dealt with. Remember we saw in chapter 5 that there was a, uh, an ancestral relationship in the church. And he's like, you can't have that. And then there were indictments. They were taking one another to court. And then finally, there were also a tremendous, um, or there was also a tremendous amount of immorality. He's like, look, that's not how we roll as Christians. Your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit now. God wants to change it. The rest of the book, though, beginning in chapter 7, Paul says, now I'm going to answer your questions. And, and they had written to him asking about marriage and singleness and divorce and remarriage, and that's in chapter 7. And then in chapters 8 through 10, he dealt with the issue of whether they could eat this meat that was offered to idols and whether they could go to temples. But in case you're just joining us, chapters 11 through 14 are all dealing with one singular topic. The broad topic is, what do we do when we gather together as Christians? And so most of this entire section is to to make corrections. He's like, this is what you're doing, this is what you should be doing. So last week we talked about the head coverings. Two weeks ago we talked about the Lord's table. Today, beginning in chapter 12, we're going to begin to look at the next three chapters are all about the use of spiritual gifts when you gather together. And it seems that probably the, the, the major problem that they were having is that there was a oh, there was an overemphasis on the expression of tongues. Now, for some of you, you've heard about tongues, and we're going to talk our way through this. Some of you don't even know what tongues are, but tongues in the Bible, there are various views of, number one, what they were, and number two, are they still for today? And we're going to address that. But one thing we, we can gather, especially when we get to chapter 14, is that this ecstatic utterance, this miraculous gift of speaking in a, in a different tongue was was so overemphasized in the church that Paul's going, you guys are, are out of control. It's disorder, chaos, it's confusing. And so he's writing to them to, to reorient them to an understanding of how not only tongues works, but how spiritual gifts works. So beginning in verse 1, if you'll look with me, he says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware. Now you'll notice in some Bibles, it, the, the word gifts is actually in italics because technically the word here is just spiritual. So really it could be translated concerning spiritual things. And, and the Greek word spiritual things is the word pneumatica from which the Greek word pneuma, the word spirit. So 
In other words, the idea here is, let's talk about the things of the Spirit. And there are a number of spiritual things that are mentioned in the Bible. The Bible tells us that God himself is, 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 exists in a spirit. The same word is used to discuss the spiritual warfare that we're in. In fact, earlier in, in chapters 2 and 3, Paul talked about spiritual people, you who are spiritual. But here, he wants to emphasize the spiritual things that, can turn, that, that relate to the work of the Holy Spirit when Christians are ministering and gathering together. And you'll notice that he says, I don't want you to be unaware. And the reality is, much of our Christian faith is not something that you would learn by your own intellect. It's God's divine revelation, and that's why we need the Word of God. Some of you are completely unaware of spiritual things because you're new or you haven't read the Bible. Some of you <clears throat> are aware of spiritual things, but perhaps need to be reminded or corrected or even just encouraged. As a disciple, Jesus said, go and make disciples. So whether you are new to this or whether this is something that you're aware of, it's still, as Peter said, I want to stir you up by way of reminding you. So as we're looking at this passage we want to step back a moment and maybe look at a broader picture and talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit himself and his ministry. All of this chapter is going to be about spiritual gifts, and I'm only going to go down to verse 13. But the first thing that Paul's going to point out here, and this isn't the only thing, is that the Holy Spirit is the, the person who enables us to know God. So if you're new to the Christian faith, the Bible teaches that there's only one God Matter of fact, just on Saturday, I met a guy who said, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Messianic Christian. But then he said, but I don't believe in the Trinity. Then I said, then you're not a Christian. Because Christianity, the heart and soul of Christianity is built around the belief that the Bible reveals God as one God who exists in three equal and eternal persons. So even though the Bible says in Deuteronomy, God is one, we learn from the New Testament that this one God exists in three equally eternal persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're not th three different ways that God puts on a costume, but they all exist at the same time, and they're all eternal. But over the course of history in the Christian church through studying the Bible, Christians have become convinced, and I'm absolutely certain of this from the Bible, that even though there's one God who exists in three persons, they're, they're the same in nature, but each of them has a distinct role. So, one of God's most important plans on planet Earth is the salvation of His elect, to form together the community of the people of God. It began in His mind before the foundation of the world, and it'll be consummated in a new heaven and a new earth. But as you're reading the Bible, we learn that the Father is the one who planned our salvation. The Bible says that we are chosen by God the Father before the foundation of the world. Common sense would tell us that it's the Son, Jesus, who purchased our salvation. But the Holy Spirit is the one who applies salvation to our hearts. And so that's one of the things that Paul's going to teach us today, is he's going to say, I want you to start with this understanding, that is the Holy Spirit is the one who enabled you to know Jesus as Lord. Now, for some of you, you remember when we were in chapter 2, we used the illustration of gospel glasses. So when we gather for our Bible study in our home, I'll just ask, who's going to pray on our gospel glasses? And that's just become a metaphor of saying, okay, who's going to pray that the Holy Spirit teaches us? So let's begin in verses 2 and 3, where we learn this idea that the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to know Jesus, because that's going to set the foundation for what God wants us to know about spiritual gifts. 
He says in verse 2, you know that when you were pagans. Now, that's kind of a strong translation there. The word doesn't, doesn't necessarily have the same connotations like, like we would say, you're a filthy pagan. But you know that when you were Gentiles, when you were unbelievers, you were led astray to the dumb idols. However, you were led. Now, there's been a lot of extra-biblical research that's done on this, and there is evidence that in the first century that when these, we'll call them just Gentiles, gathered to worship their gods, that there were times that some of them would experience what theologians call a, 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 a state of ecstasy where they would burst forth in, you know, babblings. Now, is Paul referring to that here? It's hard to say. When he says you were led astray to dumb idols, all he's really saying, when the Bible talks about dumb idols, he's not saying they're stupid. He's saying that, that, that they can't speak. The Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah said, your, your, your idols, they have arms, but they can't do anything. They have ears, they can't hear. They have eyes, they can't see. And so, all he's reminding us is that all of us, before we knew Christ, were blind and lost and, and, and either godless, couldn't care less about God, or whatever our religion was, we were led astray. But if it was a reference to ecstatic utterances, he's saying, think back when you used to go to those idols' temples. When he says you were led, that implies that somebody was leading them. And you'll remember in chapter 10 that he said this, that when you go to these idol temples, there's demons and so, it's important to remember this, that right now, all over the world, demons every day are deceiving people. And it's not just by getting them to worship Satan. I would suggest that in many churches in Bucks County, demons are deceiving people. The Bible says, in the last days, many will fall away from the faith, paying attention to the doctrines of demons. And one of the primary ways that demons mislead people is through false teachers, people who get up and disclaim the Bible or teach things that the Bible doesn't teach. And so it is interesting, and I, I noted in one of the commentaries, he said, it is helpful for us at times as Christians to just remember a couple things. Number one, remember that you were once lost. Don't forget that. Paul will frequently say, remember your past. And sometimes when we're tempted to say, these idiots and these morons, why are they doing that? Look at these people. Paul says in Titus, remember that we ourselves once were disobedient and deceived and enslaved to our own lust, hateful and hating one another. But the kindness of God appeared. And so he starts by reminding them, hey, here's why you're a Christian. Look at verse 3. I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says... Jesus is accursed. Now, the word here, accursed, is the word anathema. And then he says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now, the question is, why would, why would Paul say here, no one can say Jesus is accursed? It's been suggested, I don't agree with this, that one of the dangers of speaking in tongues is that the devil's going to put it in your mind and suddenly you're going to curse Jesus and not even know it. I don't think that's his point here. In fact, one of the things we do know 
is that in the first century, particularly when Jewish people made a profession of faith, that they were challenged by the synagogue community either to renounce it or to be expelled from the synagogue. And one of the final tests for that is if a person said, no, 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 I, I, I don't want to be put out of the synagogue, then they would ask them to say, then I want you to say, Jesus is anathema. And so Paul says, I want you to know that no one who has the Holy Spirit in them is going to curse Jesus. At the same time, I want to mention something else about this word anathema. Paul says in Galatians chapter 1, if anyone preaches a gospel different from the gospel that he preaches, let that person be anathema. So as much as we want to go, you know, there's lots of different religions out there, unless they're preaching the gospel of the grace of God, Paul says, they're under the curse of God. And, and this Saturday, this person that I was having a discussion with, I'm like, look, look, we're not saying the same thing. So let's not try to act like you're a messianic Christian, I'm a Christian. The gospel that you're proclaiming is not the gospel of the New Testament. And I, and I read to him Galatians 1. The Bible says if you bring a false gospel, you're under the curse of God. So how is it that we came to understand the opposite? Look at this phrase, Jesus is Lord. Now, does that mean a non-Christian can't say those words? You're like, try to say Jesus is Lord. A non-Christian goes, Jesus, I can't say it. He's not saying they can't pronounce those words. What he's saying is, if you, and this is something for you to think about, if you genuinely know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, know this, that it's because of the Spirit of God. It's not because you wised up, you yogi bared it, smarter than the average bear, but God in His grace opened your eyes to the Holy Spirit, and He gave you the understanding that Jesus Christ is Lord. And I want to pause on that phrase for just a moment because that is incredibly important. It's not whether you say that. It's not whether you say whether you believe it, but whether you truly do in your heart of hearts embrace that truth and cling to that, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, died on the cross for all of your sins, was raised from the dead, and that if you've come to believe that he died on the cross, rose from the dead, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So ask yourself, is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? And I do want to remind you that it's more than just saying that. There will be many people on Judgment Day who said this word, yeah, yeah, Jesus my Lord. But Jesus said, why would you call me Lord if you won't do what I say? So one of the marks of a person who knows Jesus as Lord is that they not only confess him with their mouth, but that they submit to him in their life. This is what the Bible calls repentance. Genuine Christian faith is not just saying to Jesus, hey, thanks for the hell insurance. It's Jesus died and rose again that I might be saved. And thus, he not only is my Savior, he's now my Lord. And the essence of Christian discipleship is learning to follow the Lord, learning to become like the Lord. 
And one of the things Paul's going to remind us, and this is an interesting thing to think about, is that the role of the Holy Spirit is not primarily to get us to focus on the Holy Spirit, but the Spirit's role is to point us to Jesus as Lord. J.I. Packer in his book, Keeping in Step with the Spirit, gives what I consider to be the finest illustration I've ever thought about. Jesus said when the Spirit comes, He won't speak of Himself. He will glorify me. He said, whenever you go past a building at night and you notice that building, like this building looks nice at night, we don't even realize that the reason that we notice the building and the landscaping is because there's landscaping lights. We just don't even notice that. No one rides past a beautiful uh, building at night or any landscape and goes, wow, I wonder if that's a, a GE 220. I wonder if that's an extra voluminous, uh, you know. We don't even notice it. And in essence, the Spirit of God is doing the same thing. He comes into our, our lives and He opens our eyes and He continually reveals Jesus to us. And so it's, it's incredibly important for you to ask yourself, do I confess Jesus? Do I believe that Jesus Christ is my Savior and Lord? If you do, Paul goes, I want you to know that's because of the Holy Spirit. Now, the second thing is he's going to tell us then, is that th that same Holy Spirit gives us gifts. And that even though it's the Spirit who introduces us to Jesus, ultimately the entire triune God is the one who gives us gifts. So, verses 4 down through verse 6, Paul's going to mention all three members of the Trinity. And he's going to source these gifts ultimately in the triune God. So, verse 4. Now, there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of ministries. Now, that, that word is services. And the same Lord. And there are varieties of effects or manifestations or, or workings of God. But it's the same God who works all things in all persons. So, okay, Paul, you don't want me to be ignorant of the Spirit. All right, the Spirit is, is the one who reveals God to me. Ultimately, the triune God is the one who is working in our midst, particularly in the realm of gifts. But now he's going to tell us something incredibly important, and that is the purpose of spiritual gifts. Look with us in verse 7. He says, To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit why? For, for my benefit? So that people could go, wow, you're awesome? No. Each one of us is given the, the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. So when you came to know Christ, God gave you the Spirit, and part of that gift of the Spirit is the Spirit of God gave you gifts. And those gifts are not primarily for you, but they're for the benefit of other Christians. And that, that in itself ought to tell you a couple things. Number one, I ought to discover my gifts. And number two, I ought to develop and use my gifts. So, these Corinthians had felt that these specially miraculous gifts, like speaking in tongues, they were using them to bring attention to themselves. And may I remind you that, that that's something that everyone struggles with? As soon as you discover, even non-Christians, as soon as you discover that you're good at something, right, 
you automatically now enter into a realm of temptation. And that is to use what you're good at to get praise, to feed your ego. And this explains, think back to, think back to how young people, and even maybe back in your childhood, as you began to sort of have to identify as something. Are you going to be the class clown? Are you going to be um, the bookworm? Are you going to be the jock? Are you going to be the player? Well, 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 sometimes it starts early. Maybe, maybe an attractive child, they hear over and over again, oh, you're so beautiful. And so they, be, they begin to, some of you are like, well, I'm just saying, <laughs> you know. Like, so, but, or maybe early on you were told, oh, you're so smart. Or early on you're like, wow, I can jump higher than the other boys. Oh, you're so athletic. And so there's this temptation to take something that God has gifted us with and then to use that for our own ego as opposed to recognizing that what God is saying is anything that you're gifted at, it's not primarily for you. It's for others. And that's something I need to keep reminding myself. Even as a pastor, it feels good. when people say, Oh, pastor, that was, that was such a blessing. But ultimately, I have to remind myself, my gifts, every pastor's gifts, every one of us, our gifts aren't for us. They're not for our ego. They're for God's glory and the benefit of others. So let's talk about spiritual gifts. Paul's going to give us now some gifts that he's going to sample. So the, the third thing I want to note here is that spiritual gifts are diverse and they're sovereignly distributed. Okay? So remember, we used to tell Tease, tease one another. Remember growing up, you know, I sent your picture to Ripley's, believe it or not. They sent it back, said they didn't believe it. Or, hey, remember when you were a kid, God was handing out looks. You thought he said books, and so you asked for a scary one. So some of you are like, <laughs> some of you are like, you were cruel. Come on, it was just, it was all in fun. Some of you are like, yeah, well, I'm in therapy about that, and for that we all apologize, because it, is, it isn't kind to be cruel. But when it comes to spiritual gifts, it's important to remember that God didn't survey us and say, so help me, help me to understand, what, what would you like? But we're going to learn here that they're sovereignly distributed. In fact, look down at verse 11. Paul says, God distributed these gifts to us individually just as he willed. And so next week, Pastor Austin is going to really pick up on that, that, that I need to recognize that whatever my gift is, if I'm sitting around comparing myself and going, why didn't I get this? Or how come I can't do that? Or why is he better? I'm already forgetting something. And that is that God sovereignly distributed these gifts to me. But the point I think Paul wants to, to make here is that spiritual gifts are diverse. So in verse 8, he says, to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit, to another the word of knowledge, according to the same spirit, to another faith, and so forth. And I'm going to look at these gifts. But one of the things that's interesting is there's only four chapters in the New Testament that mention spiritual gifts. It's not like the Bible has, you know, 500 different places. There's only four chapters. And if you study those four chapters, and some of you would like to do this, it's Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12. That's two of the chapters, so two chapter 12s. The other two are chapter 4s. Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 4. That's it. But in these four chapters, theologians have taken these gifts that are mentioned, tried to, tried to you know, not reduplicate, and come up with about 20 or 21 gifts, 
okay? So it's not like there's a hundred or a million different gifts. There's 21 gifts. In fact, the reason I said or 20 or 21 is because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish you all were celibate, but not all have that gift, right? And some of you are going, please, God, don't give me that gift. And I'll, I'll put you at ease. If you're worried that you have it, if you're worried that you have that gift, you don't. Because the point would be, you're content in your singleness. You, you don't have a desire to get married. So how am I to think of these gifts? Because in different passages, Paul just picks different gifts. And, and, it, and it's kind of like, okay, so why, why did you randomly pick this list? When we close this morning, we're going we're gonna to look at Romans 12. And he picks a different list. And sometimes you go, all right, well, what's the connection here? What? Why these gifts? Well, something that struck me, and I want you to go back to chapter 1, is that you'll remember that the Apostle Paul was incredibly good at encouraging Christians. Even though Christians have lots of faults, he was incredibly good at, at finding things that they're good at and encouraging them in that. So, a great reminder as parents, as much as it's easy just to lecture as much as it is to just tune up the areas that aren't going well, it's also incredibly important to constantly, even with our spouses and our kids and one another, to encourage each other. And so, if you've been with us, you're going, man, this church is kind of messed up. But yet, even though they're messed up, Paul, as he meditated and thought about this precious church, he goes, you guys are incredibly spiritually gifted. So, back in chapter 1, let's, let's remember... In verse 4, he says, I thank God concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him. And all, now, now notice, in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you, so that you are not lacking in any gift. Pastor Austin, as our interim lead pastor, has been walking us as elders and pastors through the process of discerning the vision of our church for the future. And one of the things that we're trying to do, and he's going to be teaching on this next week and, and in the weeks to come, is trying to discern the gifts and the DNA of each individual church. What is it about Riverstone Church that God has uniquely gifted us in what areas and then how can we use those gifts and resources in the maximal way to glorify Christ. So Paul says to these Corinthians, you're extraordinarily gifted in gifts of speech and knowledge. So this was just a very gifted church in, in, in the ability to understand and communicate scripture. And the reality is not all churches have that same sense of deep giftedness in the realm of speaking. So when we come to chapter 12, when Paul selects some of the gifts, he is going to mention some of the speaking gifts. But I want to take a moment here to talk about these diverse gifts. So go, so, so go back to chapter 12, because what I want you to, to begin the process of doing, if you haven't already done this, is be thinking, how would I discover my gift? In 1 Peter chapter 4, this is an incredibly important verse. Write this down. 1 Peter 4, verses 10 through 12. You don't have to turn there. 
I'll tell you what it says, but I want you to think about this and read it on your own and kind of ponder and pray over it. Peter says, each one of us has received a special gift. So I want you to employ that gift in serving one another, okay? And he says, as you do that, you're a good steward of the manifold grace of God. The word manifold means multifaceted. Remember we just sang, your grace is enough. God pours out grace all over the church, but one of the ways he graces us is with spiritual gifts. So Peter says, you have a gift, so I want you to discover that gift, and as a good steward, use it to serve others. But then he gives us a really helpful verse. In verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, in other words, if you have a speaking gift, he says, speak as it were, the oracles of God. In other words, there's this category that he's going to teach us that some of the gifts of the Spirit are gifts of communicating, gifts of speech. If you have a speaking gift, he says, be sure that your speaking gift is communicating the Word of God. But then he says, if anyone serves, let him use the strength that God supplies so that in all things, God may be glorified. So what I want you to begin to think about is some of you have been given speaking gifts. Some of you have been given serving gifts. Some of you have been given speaking and serving gifts. It seems abundantly clear that there are more than one gift. Many of you have more than one gift. Some of you have never even thought about this, so you haven't yet discovered what your gifts are. God's not playing Marco Polo where he's trying to, to trick you. It's his desire, it's his design to say, as I brought you into my family and I placed you in a local community, I want you to know what your gifts are. And then through the Holy Spirit, I want you to use them. So before we look at this sampling and kind of try to look at it in its context, let me just give you some examples some speaking gifts. There's the gift of teaching. So teaching doesn't necessarily mean that you have to stand in front of an entire audience and, and you're like, I, 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 you're still in trauma from speech class. You get those red blotches all over. You'd rather pluck your eyes out than stand in front of a group. Teaching doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be in front of a large audience, but it's a gift to communicate scripture into the lives of others in a way that they can understand and apply it. And so I didn't know as a new Christian that I had the gift of teaching. In fact, my first experience teaching, teaching Sunday school was, was abysmal. I, no one taught me, and so I was just reading from a, from, a, from a little Sunday school curriculum sheet, and the kids are like all over the place, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a failure. No, you, you, you learn. When God has given you a gift, you'll desire it and you'll develop it. So some of you may have a gift of teaching. If you have any desire to learn about that, talk to us. You don't have, we're not going to throw you in front of a crowd, but maybe have you be an apprentice with a Sunday school teacher or just begin to be an apprentice in a small group. But that would be an example of a speaking gift. Evangelism is a speaking gift. Encouragement is a speaking gift. So there are a number of speaking gifts, but there are also lots of serving gifts like administration, like helps, like hospitality like showing mercy, like giving. 
And so we can put tools in your hands for you guys to study and, and, and think and develop these things, but just think in broad categories of speaking and serving gifts. Later on, we're going to also talk about sign gifts, these miraculous manifestations like speaking in tongues. But let's look here, as, as I said, I think Paul's point is, he says, I don't want you Corinthians to be ignorant, but he knows in the back of his mind, some of you think you're a big deal because you, you, you speak in tongues, and you think you're better than others, and, and I need to, to bring you around on that. So let's start with this. Understand, you didn't pick your gifts, God did, and your gifts aren't for you, they're for others, and your gifts were sovereignly distributed in a variety of ways for the benefit of others. So let's look at the sampling that Paul has here. And I'm not going to take a ton of time to explain these gifts because some of them, people aren't even 100% sure what they mean. But he says, For to the one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. So obviously that would be some sort of a communication gift, right? Because what good would it be to, to have a word of wisdom and never speak words? Now, in the Old Testament, wisdom is the skillful application of Scripture. There's also the word of knowledge. And I would suggest here that the word of wisdom is a gift that God gives to certain Christians that gives them an insightful ability to give wise, biblical, skillful advice as to what to do in a variety of situations. Everything in life is not black and white. And the Bible says, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. I had a dear old friend when I pastored at Chelton by the name of Jack Hebden. Jack didn't even have a high school education, but everybody in the church knew this. If you needed advice, this godly man was so profoundly wise that we would seek him out. He had the word of wisdom. Next, Paul mentions to another the word of knowledge. Now again, it's hard to say what exactly that means because knowledge in and of itself isn't wrong and perhaps the gift of knowledge is a, is an, is a unique ability to retain and understand Scripture. You know, frequently I'll hear some of you say, gosh, you know, um, I can't remember what I read yesterday and, I, and you know, how do you remember all those things? And, and I go, ask my wife. I can't even remember where my keys are, right? So if God has given me an unusual ability to, to, to remember things, it, I don't have a photographic memory. If I do, I lost the, 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 the film. So, but, but perhaps a word of knowledge, there are some people who just have an increasing ability to, to remember the scriptures. Now, don't use that in the sense of saying, that's why I don't try to memorize scripture because I don't have the word of knowledge. But, but some people have a knowledge of scripture. Now, here's a cool one. To another faith by the same Spirit. That's cool to think about. All of us are supposed to have faith, but, but, but you, could, you could kind of play this out a little bit. What would it look like for someone to have the gift of faith? It must mean that they have a greater degree of, of confidence in the promises of God so that when that person prays, mountains move right? Paul's going to say in chapter 13, he goes, even if I had all faith so as to move mountains. So, I think this should get your, your mind rolling. Do you not have certain people that you go, if I need something prayed, prayed on, 
I want to be on their prayer list, right? It's, it's often an older person where you're like, that person, God seems to just hear them, right? So some of you may have this unique ability to believe God in prayer. And so Paul says, listen, that's a blessing. That's another gift to the church, the gift of faith. He says, to another gifts of healing by the one spirit. Now, we're not going to talk in detail about this for now, other than to say this. When we come to chapter 14, I want to talk more about these miraculous gifts. There are many people who would say today, God doesn't give the gift of healing anymore. Now, those who hear that sometimes react and say, yeah, you cessationists who don't believe that, you don't believe God heals. And of course, the people over here would say, I'm not saying God doesn't heal. We believe God heals through corporate prayer rather than God giving a spiritual gift to an individual to lay their hands on someone and pray. So, some of you are probably going, what's your view, Pastor Tom? I'm going to hold off on that. But just note that Paul selects that gift here. To another, the effecting of miracles. To another, prophecy. And that's going to be highly developed in chapter 14. So just make a note of that. In chapter 14, he goes, that's, that's the big one. That's the one I want you to emphasize when you assemble. You guys are, are, are emphasizing tongues. He goes, stop it. He goes, prophecy is greater, way more important in the assembly of, of the church. To another, the distinguishing of spirits. Now again, what does that mean? I, I've had people say to me, you know, this Christian... They just have a unique ability to just see right through people. I can spot them. And that is interesting because we are taught in the Bible to test the spirits. Not everybody's who they appear to be. And some people just seem to have a unique insight to spot a person's a phony. Now, be careful, right? Because we can be very critical and judgmental. But, but the Spirit of God over time will, will indicate there are some people who just have an ability to distinguish something's not right here. And that's subjective, just because someone says that, we're like, oh, no. But, 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 but think that through. And then Paul says, to another various kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues, which interestingly, notice, he's going to do this repeatedly at the end of this chapter, and Austin will be there next week. He puts tongues at the end. They were putting tongues at the beginning. He's putting it at the end. So, let, let's wind down here and talk about how, how this would relate to us. So, he reminds us. Now, remember, one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually, just as He wills. So, you go, okay, all right, so, so I'm seeing that. I'm seeing that it's God's sovereign choice to distribute these gifts. So, the Spirit reveals Jesus to me. The triune God is the one who gifts me. The purpose of my gifts are to help others. Gifts are various and sovereignly distributed. But the last thing I want you to see here is in verses 12 and 13, and that is, Paul's going to refer to a special phrase here, the baptism of the Spirit. He's going to say this, it's the baptism of the Spirit that makes us all one. It's important that, that Christians know what the baptism of the Spirit is. And I'll tell you why, because there are different views of what this means. And any of you who have come from a Pentecostal or charismatic background will probably hear this term used in a very different way. 
it would probably sound something like this. Someone might ask you, are you a Christian? Oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm saved. Okay, great. Now, have you been baptized by the Spirit? And if, and if you're unfamiliar, you say, well, well, what do you mean by that? Have you spoken in tongues yet? Because what you should expect to happen is that sometime after you become a Christian, God is going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, and you're going to speak in tongues. And I'm going to suggest from this passage that that is categorically incorrect. And I want to be courteous, but I believe that that teaching has brought a great deal of confusion and unnecessary guilt on Christians that shouldn't be taught, okay? And I'm not being unkind, but it's important. So something as simple as this, at the end of chapter 12, Paul says, not all speak in tongues. So how cruel, not on purpose, to tell someone, you have to speak in tongues, you have to be baptized with the Spirit, because I can tell you there are many Christians who spend years in guilt and confusion in churches that are teaching this because they haven't experienced that, and so they're, they're, they're sort of taught to, it's, it's your fault. You just need to pray more. You need to just, you just need to keep trying, you know, just, just to start saying things until you speak in tongues. And the, the fact is, the Bible says not everyone speaks in tongues. But number two, I think it's a misunderstanding of the phrase baptism in the Spirit. The word baptism in the Spirit, that phrase is only used six times in the entire New Testament. Most of them are in the Gospels. One in Acts, and one here. It was John the Baptist who first predicted it. He said, among you stands one who will baptize you in the Spirit. Jesus himself then reinforced it. He said, you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit many days from now. So what exactly is baptism of the Spirit? As you look at this passage, number one, I want you to, to see here, I think this passage makes it very clear that all Christians have been baptized by the Spirit. There's no such thing as being a Christian and not having been baptized by the Spirit. Baptism of the Spirit takes place at conversion. It is not some later experience. A later experience could be called a filling of the Spirit. But I want to be very careful there. A filling of the Spirit does not mean that prior to that, you didn't have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Romans chapter 8, write this down. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says this. If any man doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he doesn't belong to Christ. Well, think about that. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. Now, belong to Christ is just another way of saying you're a Christian, right? When did you belong to Christ? When you first gave your life to him, you, you, you confessed him as your Lord. The moment that happens, you're regenerated, you're indwelt by the Spirit, and you have the Spirit of God inside of you. So, notice what Paul says. He goes, even as the body is one, and Austin's going to pick up on this, I, the, the different facets of why Paul calls the church the body, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though there are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit, now notice, we were all baptized into one body. By one spirit, we were, now notice, we were all baptized. So when someone says to you, have you been baptized by the spirit? Well, yeah, I'm a Christian. 
You say, well, how do you get that from here? Well, think about this. Paul hasn't been with these Corinthians for quite some time. And a number of new converts surely were in the assembly. So how could Paul say, we were all baptized? Unless he believed that baptism in the Spirit takes place at conversion. Otherwise, he would say, by one Spirit, some of you have been baptized. Now, the rest of you, I'm praying that you get baptized. So, no, if you're a Christian, you've already been baptized by the Spirit. Paul says, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. And in this text, what is baptism in the Spirit? Well, he tells us. He says, you were baptized into one body. Whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So, baptism of the Spirit is simply taking you and putting you into the body of Christ. It's not some special, you know, anointing where you suddenly babble in tongues. When you became a Christian, God poured out His Spirit inside of you and He made you part of the community. Now, one of the things that you'll note, Paul says here, hey, did you, did you catch it? There's no slave or free. There's no rich or poor. We're all equal. And that's going to be a big deal. Paul's trying to beat down this sense of superiority. So let's thank the Lord that we're part of the body of Christ. Let's thank the Lord that he's gifted us and brought us together. Rich, poor, red and yellow, black and white, all different backgrounds. But we've been indwelled by the Spirit of God and empowered to do his work. So here's my application. I want you to think, think this through. Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, since you've experienced the mercies of God, present yourself a living sacrifice to God. So the first thing I want to remind you, my brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, God wants you to surrender to serve him. If you haven't done that, everything else is meaningless. You're already forgiven, but you surrender. You present your body to God. You say, Lord, as a, as a blood-bought child of God, I surrender to you. But then he says this. Now, don't think more highly of yourself. And then he says, and since each one of us has gifts, use them in serving in the body of Christ. So I want to close by, by challenging you and me and our entire fellowship. Number one, if you're here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord, this is always the time to do it. It's never a good idea to say, oh, I'll, I'll accept Jesus as my Lord later. But number two, if he is your Lord, are you surrendered to him? And so Paul doesn't say, surrender to him and then, and then just go do your thing. He says, surrender to him and then employ your gifts in serving. And so in the days to come, we're, we're doing all that we can. And, and, and the Spirit of God has put on Austin a special burden, particularly to make sure that each one of us in the body of Christ here is engaged, is involved, is using their gifts for Christ. You will be blessed, God will be honored, and the body of Christ will continue to grow. So would you bow with me as we close in prayer? Take a moment as a Christian and just thank the Lord for your salvation. Thank Him for the Holy Spirit. And, and just reaffirm your surrender, that you're willing to surrender to him as a living sacrifice.
Now take a moment and ask him, Lord, show me how through the Holy Spirit I can serve you here at Riverstone. And finally, perhaps the Spirit of God is sovereignly calling you. There might be someone here today that is ready to say to Jesus, yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Jesus, I'm willing to confess you and follow you as my Lord and Savior. Lord, I thank you for your children my brothers and sisters, the family of God, the body of Christ here. It's exciting to see how many people are engaged and involved in serving Christ. Thank you for your extraordinary mercies. Even though we fail you, even though we disappoint you, even though we grieve the Spirit, you patiently and graciously build us up. So, Lord, I pray that you will stir up our fellowship. As Paul told Timothy, stir up the gift of God which is in you. May you fan the flame and work your work and show forth dynamic evidence that the Spirit of God is powerfully transforming our fellowship. Lord, thank you for this wonderful gift of the Holy Spirit. May we thirst to know more about him and may we rejoice together as we learn to care for each other as part of the body of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.